0: On March 20th, 1991, Orestes Lorenzo, a pilot in the Cuban Air Force, flew his MiG-23 from Cuba to Key West, Florida, landed an American airstrip, and in broken English said, I want to become an American citizen. He spent the next year trying to get the Cuban government to allow his wife and two sons to join him. The United States had granted him political asylum almost immediately because he was Cuban. And they issued a visa for his wife. And Cuban officials called his wife in and said, your husband flew one of our planes to America and you are never leaving this country. You will never see him again. So when his efforts failed to gain her access to the country, Orestes had someone go through Mexico and smuggle a letter to his wife, Maria. And in that letter, he gave her instructions to drive her car with their 11-year-old son and their 6-year-old son, to a well-known bridge that was on a highway that ran along the coast of Cuba. Told them when and where to be there. And he flew a 1961, so this is a, it's a 30-year-old airplane. He flew a 1961 twin-engine Cessna, landed on the highway at 5.41 p.m. So this, this is rush hour traffic. Landed on the highway and picked them up. He had not seen his family in 21 months. His boys, they had been about four years old and about seven years old when he left. So when he saw them again after almost two years, they just wanted to touch him and embrace their dad because they had missed him so much. But he immediately put them in the plane, and with tears in his eyes, they flew back to Florida. I read this story in a book that my grandma gave me years ago. And as I was wanting to have the details for this message, I looked it up and found a New York Times article that describes this in great detail and interviews with him almost immediately after he'd done this rescue operation. You still watch them on YouTube. This happened, he is about 51, 52 years old. The little boys that were... 7 years old and 4 years old when he left and just a little bit older than that when he came back they're my age he's still alive this this happened recently and it's a story that's so inspiring because it's so unbelievable that he had the guts to fly this Cessna. He said he flew basically at wave level so that the Cubans wouldn't detect him coming. By the time he knew he, he was there, it was too late to do anything about it. They couldn't stop him. I want to ask you a question, though, as you think about a story like that, that's so exciting. I want to pause for a second and say, imagine for a moment, what if his wife got the letter and somehow didn't show up? Maybe after almost two years, she said, you know what? Forget you. Fine in Cuba. Find another husband. Or Maybe even more tragically, imagine if she had tried to meet him at that bridge and she hadn't put gas in the car. So five miles before they get to the bridge, the car just peters out and they're stuck and they can't make the rendezvous. There's no hope and there's no way to let him know. He doesn't have a cell phone and she doesn't have a radio. What would have happened if she had not been ready with their boys? Well, this would not be a happy story. This this would not be a story that we are celebrating. And look look at that couple that they made it work. Look look at that daring escape. Look at that awesome rescue. It, it would be a tragic story, a story of almost, a story of what if. But think for just a moment about this: Jesus is coming for His bride, the church. And he has given you clear instructions for you to be ready and for me to be ready. The question is, are you ready to meet him? Are you ready to meet him? We are in Luke chapter 12. We've been going through the book of Luke slowly because we want to know who Jesus is as Jesus is. And last week, we we were in the middle portion of chapter 12, and Jesus warns us about putting all of our treasure here on earth and not being ready to die and meet the Lord face to face. There's a young man that that had success financially and, and not thinking at all about the next life. He tore down his barns and built bigger barns. And God said to him, You fool! This night your soul is required of you And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Jesus says, you and I are a fool. If we do not store up for ourselves treasure in heaven, we have no idea when we will die. And so last week's message was about using your money to store treasure in heaven. Not that you can gain God's favor. But because you have a heavenly Father who loves you, and Jesus gives that assurance so clearly that you can be recklessly generous because your Father loves you, He gave you His Son to die for your sins, and He will provide for all of your needs. So live a life of reckless generosity because you don't know when your soul is going to be required of you. So be ready today. So, last week's message was talking about using your money to store up treasures in heaven as you live that life of faith, trusting your heavenly Father who loves you. This week's message is about using not your finances, but using your life to store up treasure in heaven because you don't know when Jesus is returning. Both of these messages show how to obey this command be ready be ready. Be ready for God to call your soul home if you die, and if you live, be ready for the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to return at any moment. So I want to show you the command that Jesus gives us this morning. And say a word about how he commands us to be ready. Look with me at Luke chapter 12. Starting in verse 35. We're going to read through verse 40. Jesus says. Stay dressed for action. And keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. So that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also "...must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect." Jesus highlights, first of all, how blessed we are if we are faithful and ready. Before He issues any warning, He talks about your ultimate happiness and my ultimate happiness is found when we are faithful to Christ when we are ready to meet him face to face. And he describes that readiness in two ways. He says, dressed for action, with lamps burning. And here's part of what he means. So in this culture in the first century, men and women, they all wore similar clothing. It it was a robe that covered you from head to toe, and it was almost impossible to run in. And so if you needed to run, the the old English language for it is they said, gird your loins, which is a hilarious expression no one uses. Gird your loins. What that meant is you would pick up your robe at the bottom and pull it up to your hips and tie it with a belt so that your legs were free to move. And Jesus says, live like that. Live ready to run constantly. Constantly. It's an image of always being prepared. He says, because you do not know when Jesus is coming back. And then he describes these servants who are ready to welcome his return. And he says, be ready, be ready for action. Calvin, John Calvin, who I like to read, described it like this. He said, be ready to run vigorously. You need to not only run vigorously, but you also You need to have clear information regarding the road. So imagine for a moment someone who's trained to run a race, but they run it at night and there are no lights. Maybe they're even blindfolded. Well, you lose. You, You might even get injured. It's foolish to be ready and busy without knowing what you're doing. And so Jesus says, be ready for action, stay in a state of busyness, but have your lamps burning. Understand what God has called you to do. He's not called you to a frantic busyness. He's called you to a specific type of service, and you need to be aware of what he has called you to do. When Paul was writing to the church in in Philippi, he said it like this. He wanted them to be aware of what was best. And they needed the wisdom of God to know what the will of God was. And Paul, one of the genius things about the way God wrote his word is that he's specific enough so that we can obey it and vague enough so that we can always obey it. When Paul says you need to know what the will of God is, he doesn't outline it for you. That would never work. Seven billion people on the planet, we can't all have specific instructions. But he can tell you How you ought to live your life in every situation. For you to do that, though, you need to faithfully study the word and listen to it be taught so that you can take the light of God's word and let it shine in every area of your life so that in every way you are ready for the return of Christ and your service is fitting to your master. Let me be specific. We, in our church, need the light of the Word to evaluate every single area of ministry. We need to think through one of the things that God has called us to do is equipping disciples. And part of that, not all of that, but part of that, is giving Christians information about the Word of God. Which is measurable. So we need to evaluate the ways that we do that. One of the ways that we do that is with small groups. One of the ways that we do that is with Sunday school. And we can track those things over time and say, if you've been in Sunday school for three years, what do you know at the end of it? If you've been in this small group for five years, what do you know at the end of it? If you don't know any more about his word, then we are busy and staying dressed for action, but the lights have gone out. It's not effective. It's not actually working. And that's a problem. So Jesus calls us to leave our lamps burning, to assess our actions and our activities. And so that's one area. That's discipleship and Christian education. Another area would be in service to our community. So as we think through the different ways that we serve the community, the question is, is the community being served? How effective are we? And... Leaving the lights on, we would be willing to say, this is working well, this is not. Being willing to change things based on, if Jesus came back at this moment, would we be pleased to do this now? Knowing full well that we have no idea when he comes, would we be ready at any given moment? I think everybody hopes that Jesus would come at 11.45 on a Sunday morning. It would be great, right? I was in church. I was preaching. You were sitting. It's awesome. Jesus would be so happy. But what if he comes at 2 o'clock on a Tuesday? Are you ready on a Tuesday afternoon? Are you thinking through what you do on a daily basis so that you are ready moment by moment with the lights on, recognizing... Everything you do can be an act of worship. He has given you different gifts than he has given me, but not everything you do is an act of worship. So, how are you doing? Are you evaluating and assessing your life? How are we doing as a church? How are you doing as an individual? Jesus is coming. He's commanded us to be ready. Not only has he commanded us to be ready... He's given us some motivation. So my first point this morning is the command, be ready. My second point this morning is the motivation. You are accountable. So look with me at verses 41 through 48. Some of the most surprising things that Jesus ever said. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? Now, just pause right there. I said I was going to read through verse 48. So often... When Jesus is asked a question, he does not answer the question he was asked directly because he is a genius. This is a great way to say, okay, is there a group of people that don't need to worry? And Jesus says, that is entirely the wrong question to ask. The question you should be asking is the one he answers, and look at his answer. He says, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Jesus says, don't worry about if some people need to do this and other people don't. Try to figure out how you can be the guy who's blessed. Don't say, is this teaching for everyone? Figure out how you can be the one who's blessed. Figure out how you can be the faithful servant. Jesus is not inventing two different classes of people here, people who are responsible to serve and people who don't have to worry about it. There's no such thing as a Christian who just makes his little deal with God and then goes off and lives his life with no respect to serving the Lord who died for him and rose again. Jesus, if he has saved you, has called you to serve in his church. He's given you gifts so that you serve him faithfully until he comes. And you are accountable for that motivation. Again, this is the third time in the text Jesus says, You are blessed. If your master finds you faithful, don't lose sight of the joy that's in this passage. You will be happy. You will be thrilled as you are faithful in service. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Not only does he say, don't worry about who, you worry about being the type of person who's blessed. He also issues one of the sternest warnings in all the New Testament. So look with me back at the text here. Verse 45, there's a but. He says, but if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat, and to drink, and get drunk, Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. It's hard to believe that Jesus spoke these words. I've never had anyone say, Pastor, would you preach this at my funeral? It's not a passage we want to think about. Was I faithful? Was I the kind of guy that... that I'll only get a light beating because he really didn't know that much and so he's not on the hook for very much. That's entirely the wrong way to think. Jesus is saying, you and I are accountable for what God has given us and I believe that we are accountable for so much because not only we have the word of God not only in our language, we have it in several translations, all of which are so helpful. You can listen to top notch preaching on the internet. You can listen to okay preaching on TV. There's some good preaching on TV too, just not as much as on the internet. You can listen to good teachers who love the Lord. You can read books. You have a wealth of information to help you understand the will of God. What have you done with it? What have you done with it? I would be willing to bet. Everyone in this room is capable of reading. Now you you might say, I get sleepy when I read. That happens to a lot of people. You know what, if you stand up while you read, it gets easier. What are you doing with the wealth of information God has given you so that you can be a faithful servant? And think for a moment about how harsh this sounds, in one sense, we just want to believe that Jesus is not not this judgmental because it chafes. It just seems wrong. But I want to remind you, especially for those who are in, in ministry, there are Baptists who have sexually abused people. There are Catholics who have sexually abused people. There are ministers of the gospel who have used their positions to gain trust of people and then abuse that trust, whether it's sexually or financially. They have behaved as this servant who was drunk and beat his male servants and female servants. There are people alive today that do this. And Jesus says plainly, if you are entrusted with a responsibility to lead in the church and you abuse the sheep, the great shepherd is coming for you. And you will be accountable to him, and you will not escape his fury. Jesus does not tolerate abuse, and we should not either. And so he warns sternly, you might think that God doesn't know and doesn't see, but he does. And the master is returning. Not only for those who are in positions of authority, though, because Peter makes it clear, is this this for us, is this for everyone? And Jesus says to you and to me, you make sure that you're the kind of servant that the master is pleased to find when he returns. And so this warning is for you as well. Be faithful with what God has given you. Recognize that if you know the truth that Jesus loves you and died for you and rose from the dead, your life belongs to him. And Jesus says that you are to be active And you are to be aware. And he deals with three other things that that all tie into this theme of you must be ready. And see, this kind of talk, this kind of language, it doesn't mesh well with popular Christianity. Partly because Jesus is talking about judging sin, which we don't like to think about. But partly because we've latched on to portions of the New Testament that talk about unity and just getting along. And, And people love to talk about unity... But Jesus says in one of the most stunning verses of all of the New Testament, he didn't come to bring unity all over the world. Look at the concern that you and I have as we read this. Our concern is division. And look what Jesus says about division in verses 49 to 53. Jesus says, and I just i, I want to remind you, this is Jesus talking. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother-in-law, And mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. Jesus shockingly says he did not come to bring peace. Now, if you've been with us since the beginning of Luke's gospel, you could be forgiven for thinking, wait a minute. The angel announced, like everybody knows this, every Christmas we read this passage, the angel announces peace on earth Goodwill towards those with whom god is pleased why is jesus saying he didn't come to bring peace right after the angel announced peace on earth Well, here's part of the reason The peace that jesus brings is peace with god through his blood The bible teaches that our sin is an offense to god And unless someone came and paid the price for our sins We would not have peace with God. So, when Jesus brings peace, He's offering you and I the forgiveness that we so desperately need. But as you and I accept that forgiveness, that creates division with people who reject Christ. Think for a moment again about that that man who flew a little Cessna and rescued his wife and his two boys. He didn't pick up his parents, he didn't pick up her parents. They had four seats in that plane. They filled all four of them, and it created division in their family in a very literal way. He rescued his boys and his wife from Cuba. It didn't end well for everyone who was left in Cuba. I'm sure in one sense they were glad that they escaped and got away, but it created division. And if that's true in an earthly setting, it's even truer of the kind of salvation that we experience in Christ. As you find peace with God, you are divided from a world that is at war with God. And Jesus says this this statement about fire. He says, I I came to cast fire on the earth. That also is found earlier in Luke's gospel. And I think it would be worth turning. Notice, if you want to go back to chapter 3 with me, John the Baptist talks about this kind of fire And it's a fire that has two different types of meaning based on how you respond to Christ. So I want you to look with me at chapter 3, verse 16. They ask John the Baptist, are you the Christ? Because they see his ministry. They see people coming and repenting of their sins. And John replies saying, I baptize with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So for those who trust in Christ, They experience the fire of the Holy Spirit. It's a fire that purifies you. It it burns off dross and refines gold. It's a fire that equips you and enables you to follow the Lord in obedience. But that's not the only kind of fire that Jesus brings. Look at verse 17. John continues, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Two types of fire, two types of different things. Jesus said, I came to bring this fire. Think for a second. A winnowing fork is a tool of division. Jesus separates the wheat He stores it in his barn and he burns the chaff. There's a fire that purifies believers and there's a fire that judges unbelievers. And that starts in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus came to die in your place and in my place. He experienced the fire of God's wrath for you. But if you push him away, there's no other option than to be consumed by the fire yourself. And that will always cause division. It's like Jesus is rescuing people out of a burning building. If you choose to stay in the building, you are divided from the people that he has rescued and you are destroyed. So Jesus says, be ready. Be ready recognize that division is part of what happens because of what he's done you see it in the book of acts you see it all through the new testament as believers respond to the gospel in faith and very often they are persecuted and in acts chapter 8 it describes how the fire of persecution purified the church and the church spread the gospel and ultimately We're going to see throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem and the fire that fell on Jerusalem came because that generation rejected Christ Jesus. And it's a down payment of what's going to happen at the end of time when Christ returns and the division that happens then is a division of absolute eternal separation. You're either with God for all of eternity, experiencing the blessings, or... You are separated from God for all of eternity, experiencing his wrath. And so he urges, in light of this division, that we be ready. And here's the problem that you and I have as we think about things like this. We have a problem of indifference. Look at verses 54 through 56. He said to the crowds... When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? 2,000 years After this is written, we still interpret weather. Really, just for our own comfort. I like to know, is it going to be 80 degrees so I can wear shorts? Or is it going to be 60 degrees so I can wear pants? And all I care about is Just being comfortable. And maybe if I'm planning a picnic, I want to know if it's going to rain. And I might look at the 10-day forecast. We're planning summer fest, and we'd like to know if it's going to rain. We care about the weather. And I think if we're honest, everybody probably looks at it daily. That's almost universal. It's on the news. It's on your phone. It's on the radio. We all care about the weather because we care about our daily comfort. Jesus says if you care about your daily comfort so that you can avoid getting wet or you can avoid overheating or or, or in the winter so that you can avoid freezing to death, if you care about that momentary daily comfort, how much more should you care about eternity that has no end? But most people don't give a thought about eternity at all While planning for their daily comfort. He says if that's you. You're a hypocrite. If you care about planning daily for your comfort. But you don't care about all of eternity. Why don't you interpret your times right now? Why don't you think about. When is Jesus returning? When am I going to die? We don't know either one of those things. And yet so often we live our lives as if we have years and years like the fool that Jesus condemned. We don't give a thought to the fact that we may stand before God today. And Jesus says, if you plan for one area of your life that's so insignificant, but you fail to plan for the thing that matters most, you're a fool and a hypocrite. So don't be indifferent I want to say this very clearly because some people wrestle with it. The only way to God is through Jesus Christ. You come to God as you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. If you believe that, you should follow him in obedience in baptism, saying, I have died with Christ and been raised with Christ. And because you are raised with Christ, you live for Christ. That's where the division comes. If you are for Christ, most people are not. And in light of eternity, you need to make that decision today. Don't put it off. And not only you, but people you love and care about. Don't act like it doesn't matter and you have an indefinite amount of time. Jesus says you don't know how much time you have, so live accordingly. You know for sure the Master is returning. Be ready today. Don't assume that people are fine because they live good lives and they're decent people. Recognize, apart from Christ, you will be divided from them forever. So be ready. And the last thing that Jesus says to us is the word of preparation. He says, make peace. And I'll remind you, in verse 13, where we started last week, someone in the crowd asked him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And in that context, this is when he starts talking about money and where your heart is. And so he ends this section saying, settle with your accuser. Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Jesus exposed in that man's heart, you care more about money than you should. Settling an inheritance is not a big deal. Figure it out. Judge for yourself what is right. Instead, think about where your treasure is for all of eternity. And Jesus continues in that line, think for yourself. Use the light of the word of God to shine in every area of your life and be ready. He says, as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the very last penny. Jesus is saying, as much as it depends on you, make peace with people before the Lord returns. And so as we think about applying this passage to our lives, let me ask you just a very blunt question. If you knew that Jesus was coming today, it it is 1203. If you knew that he was coming at 1230, what would you do in the next 30 minutes? Would you be ready? Are there sins that you need to repent of? Would you rush up and say, Pastor, I need to be baptized because I want to show right now that my life belongs to Christ? Would you tell someone you love that they need to repent of their sins? And let me ask you, are you actively serving the Lord? Not just, you know, once a week putting in your time. Are you actively serving the Lord on a daily basis? So if Jesus comes at 2 on a Tuesday, you're not ashamed, but you're enthusiastic and blessed because your master caught you serving faithfully. Are you actively serving the Lord? Are you growing in understanding? Are you recognizing that you need the light of the word more and more and that this never stops? Some of the people that I've been so blessed to get to know here at our church are in their 80s. And some of our 80-year-olds have such a hunger to know the word of God after they've been in church for 70, 80 years. They're still learning. And if that's true of some of our seniors, it should be true of every single one of us. You never stop. The the Bible is a simple book to understand so that children can understand it. But there's so much depth that you will never exhaust the wisdom of God. And you will know your Heavenly Father more and more for all of eternity as you dig in. So, do you need to repent? Do you need to serve? And do you need to grow in understanding? And what are you doing to do those three things so that you are ready? Let's pray. Father in heaven, your your word has shown us that we need to grow and that we need a daily moment-by-moment awareness that Jesus could come back at any moment. I pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would make us ready. I ask that you would help us to commit to growing in knowledge. I ask that you would give us light so that we understand our times and your word and that we live accordingly. Give us more light, Lord. Give us wisdom that we lack. And Father, I pray that you would lead us in repentance as we look to Jesus. I ask that we would approach the grave or the return of Christ, whichever comes first with the kind of joy that knows that we are forgiven and we have peace with you. I ask that you would make us bold and make us ready. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to leave this morning, the last thing that we're going to do together as a church today is take communion. And I want to encourage you, you do not need to be a member of our church to take communion with us, but you do need to be a believer Walking with the Lord. And I want to give you a few moments. I've taken the word of God and encouraged you to examine your heart and examine your life. And if you need to repent of sin, repent of sin before you come. Remember the body and blood of the Lord. But remember, this is where our hope is. This is what gives us the confidence to live for Christ and to serve Christ. And so as we remember the body and blood of the Lord in obedience to what Jesus taught us to do, let's take a moment and examine ourselves, confess our sins, and then obey the Lord as we remember His body and blood. Why don't you pray for a moment, and then I'll lead us in prayer together. Father, as we come before you, we want to ask for the forgiveness of sins that you offer through the blood of Jesus. But as believers, we still stumble and fall, and I pray that you would cleanse us from our sins as you promised to do in First John. I ask that you would help us to be reconciled with our fellow believers, that we would have peace and joy with each other. And most of all, I want to thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us. Thank you for his body that was beaten for us, that was crucified. And thank you for this reminder. I pray that it would strengthen us and help us as we walk in obedience and prepare to see you face to face. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.